There's a line I use a lot in our work where I say, it's not a superpower unless it can be used for evil. That's the charisma gene. It can be amazing and it can go the other way. And we've really learned over the years in our sort of training and how we produce and take care of our ensembles to find ways to get those folks to go to the light side as opposed to the dark side. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Are you a fan of improv? I am. I remember a few years ago, I created a summer camp for alumni and uh, friends who wanted to come back to New Hampshire in beautiful summer and spend three or four days to think, to play, and to learn. It was really a fantastic program. One of the most enjoyable training slash learning slash experiential programs I've ever done in my career. We were out in the Connecticut River on 12-person canoes. We were cooking. We were doing a cooking class at the iconic Hanoverian kitchen. We had sessions on climate change, on leadership, on global politics, and we had improv. The classic thing about improv is that it takes people out of their comfort zone. I mean, people always say that, but that's exactly what it does. And as a longtime educator, I think that's a fantastic idea. And it's fun. It's really fun to do that. And maybe the most well-known, most successful improv groups in America is Second City out of Chicago. Alumni of Second City have gone on to uh, incredible success. Many are household names through their work at Saturday Night Live and many other places as well. You know, people like Amy Poehler and uh, Tina Fey, Stephen Colbert, Steve Carell, and many, many others, actually hundreds of others. I know it would have been fun to do a podcast with uh, with Tina or Amy or either of the Steves. And if they're listening uh, and interested, I'll jump at the chance. But, you know, I've always been maybe even especially interested in the people behind the scenes, the people that you don't know about and that when you learn about them, it's just so fascinating and it gives you this insight into a real person and a person that we can relate to that has done and is doing pretty cool things. And that really brings me to my guest on this episode of the SIDCast, Kelly Leonard. I met Kelly some time ago when I wrote Super Bosses. I'm not sure how we connected. He may have reached out to me because he is the executive vice president at Second City who actually runs a lot of the executive training programs that Second City puts out for companies, for organizations, for schools, etc. It's amazing because they have uh, put together, using their talent, these improv uh, experiences that help people get in touch with themselves, to become more vulnerable, to learn about themselves, to challenge themselves, to think differently, and again, to help take people out of their comfort zone. And it turns out to be a pretty powerful and valuable way to learn. And I think what happened is uh, he reached out because he's worked on a lot of different things, including a great book called Yes And. And I think he saw that there was a lot of consistency between some of his ideas and the work of Second City and actually the work that I had done in Superbosses. And it turns out it's kind of funny because in my research for Superbosses, I also did an in-depth study of Second City. Very little of that actually got into the book, uh, which is what happens when you know you spend 10 years doing research and you end up writing a book that's less than 300 pages. There's a lot of stuff left on the cutting room floor, but I have really a great narrative, a great story about Second City. And we'll put that up in the show notes for anyone who wants to see that. 
But anyways, back to Kelly. Kelly is the guy that runs the executive side of the business. He's been there forever. He's uh, worked with so many people. He's helped build Second City into what it is. He's overseen productions by people like, you know, Colbert and Tina Fey and Carell, as I mentioned, but, you know, Seth Meyers, Rachel Drach, Jason Sudeikis, Amy Sedaris, and many, many uh, others. He was also the co-founder of Second City Theatricals, the vision of the company that brings live entertainment all over the world. That includes their cruise ship work. And of course, includes the executive training work that I mentioned as well. He lives in Chicago with his wife, Anne Libera, who's been heavily involved with Second City as well. And we're going to have a discussion and conversation today, not just about Second City, but about Kelly and who he is and how he thinks. And there's so many lessons, not only in the age of COVID, but just in general. And also, it's a very personal story you'll hear about as Kelly has known personal tragedy and has the courage and openness to talk about it because he knows that that could help other people as well. So uh, without any further ado, let's welcome Kelly Leonard into the SIDCast. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein, and I'm here with Kelly Leonard. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Sid. It's really, really great to have you with us on the podcast. I have read your book. I follow what you're doing. But Second City is as iconic as they get. I wonder if you were always into comedy and improv and creativity. I mean, what about in high school? Were you one of these kids that were in all the school plays doing things like that? So my father reviewed theater and film and covered the entertainment industry in Chicago So my whole life. So I was always going to things, and whether it's circuses or seeing Marcel Marceau and actually coming to dinner at our house. So we were exposed to all form of art. So a house full of books, theater, film, music. I was never settling on one thing. I did think I wanted to be a rock star. That's what That was definitely I wanted cool. to be a hockey player, so there you go. Right. <laughs> it didn't happen for either of us. Um, <laughs> But did end up also just loving comedy. And at that time, right, I mean, this is Saturday Night Live and Richard Pryor and then to Eddie Murphy and, you know, amazing sort of figures. And I did go to Second City with my parents. Oh. And I remember seeing like Jim Belushi, Tim Kazarinski, that, that Mary Gross, George Went, that cast. I was very young. I was blown away because they could smoke on stage. <laughs> this was a thing that I thought was really cool. And then in college, I really was attracted to theater, but as a playwright. I didn't feel I was a strong actor, but I was a strong writer. And so I wrote original plays that got produced. And that's how I entered the Chicago theater community, because I, I was like, the advice I got was, if you want to work in theater, work in a theater. And it doesn't matter if you're tearing tickets or washing dishes. And so that's what I ended up doing in 1988 as a dishwasher at the Second City. You start as a dishwasher. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned Jim Belushi. So younger listeners may be not know, it's just scary for the two of us, <laughs> may not even know the John. legend of John Belushi. Do you remember seeing him? Like, did it stick yeah. in you? Was he kind of this large-in-a-life character even then when you were kind of a young guy watching it? Sure. This is what happens and has been the case really ever since, is that it is very hard to hide charisma, especially in an intimate environment like a 300-seat theater, you know, in Chicago in the Midwest. So when Belushi showed up, and I never saw John live on a Second City stage. I saw him as a Blues Brothers concert. Jim had charisma. John had eight times the charisma. And then I remember washing dishes and then coming out to watch an improv set and seeing this big guy just attack the stage, and it was Chris Farley. And the crowd was going nuts, and I'm like, I've just never seen anything like this on stage. Someone just completely giving of their body. And Chris actually became a good friend and very tragic character and tragic story for many different reasons. And then there's the people like Steve Carell and Tina Fey, who I don't think anyone 
who was watching Second City would have pointed out them at the time of being stars. We all kind of knew it because we were around them enough. We're like, oh, no, they're, they're going to find a thing. But yeah, when Tina Fey was in the cast, the star of the cast was Rachel Dratch. Oh, Rachel, Dartmouth alum, no less. Dartmouth alum, yeah. But people came to Second City to see Rachel Dratch like they came to see Chris Farley. Wow. Tina just happened to be in the cast and wrote a lot of scenes with Rachel that ended up being incredibly memorable. Mm-hmm. So uh, well, there's a lot of things I'm thinking of asking about all those characters. I love all those characters. You mentioned legendary Chris Farley as well. And you said something about charisma. You see it, right? So charisma, you're born with it. Is this it? Or can you actually develop it? Have you seen people... I don't mean just being a larger presence on the stage. We can learn how to do that. You can learn, but then there's something that's a little different than learning. I want to be careful on the terms because I'm not an expert in these terms, but I am an expert in the thing I think I'm going to talk to you about. So charisma to me is like someone who's just like, it's an amazing card trick. Like you're born with the ability to do this trick. It is not talent. It's not skill. Those elements can absolutely be developed and are honed and developed all the time and are the hallmark of basically most of the greats at Second City. Belushi and Farley in particular had this other thing, this charisma gene, which is a little dangerous because it is also akin to the need to be loved, the need to be liked. Chris was so childlike and childish in the way he conducted his life. He's constantly bouncing checks, needing money, and apologizing sort of profusely and too much. So we all sort of like coddled him, which also wasn't good, and didn't give him the skill set he needed to then navigate when life got even more difficult for him. This is a guy who went to church too much. This is a guy who had obsessive compulsive disorder, would walk down the street touching things, and did not have a family support system that I think was very good or healthy for him. Um, So it left him prone to a lot of problems. But I think charisma, there's a line I use a lot in our work where I say, it's not a superpower unless it can be used for evil. That's the charisma gene. It can be amazing and it can go the other way. And we've really learned over the years in our sort of training and how we produce and take care of our ensembles to find ways to get those folks to go to the light side as opposed to the dark side. There really hasn't been a Chris Farley case, I think, in the last, you know, 20, 25 years. And the world's changed too. Of course. And you know what you're talking about maps pretty closely to a lot of CEOs, as you know, because you work with uh, senior executives all the time. Some of the things that help them get to that winner circle, get to that corner office, they're dysfunctional behaviors. They're difficult behaviors. And some of them make it there, but they're in turmoil. And you just watch Elon Musk's Twitter feed. And that tells you all you need to know about that. Yeah, yeah. Now, you mentioned Tina Fey, of course, Steve Carell. So these were not charismatic people, as you described, but talented people. Yeah. Super talented people, right? So how do you, uh, I don't know whether you, were you ever involved in the selection of people to get into Second City? That's right. You were the talent finder? When you're the producer of Second City, which I was from 1992 to 2015, your chief job is hiring the talent for the stages. Okay. First of all, how do you find them in the first place? They come to you, no doubt. They come to us. That's it. That's a good problem to have. Every every senior HR person is listening, saying, how can I get a piece of that action? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The amount of success that I inherited was 90% because, you know, it's the largest school of improvisation in the country. Other people have have come along, but it's certainly like in what we're seeing now, of course, with the devastation with the global pandemic is a lot of these theaters are being wiped out, which is terribly sad. We're still going and we will survive this. 
But in addition to the school, people want to work with people they like. And so like when Tina got into the training program and then she started touring for Second City, she was with Amy Poehler and their best friends. And then, of course, Rachel became close. And so all these folks, it's not just that they show up, it's that they, they show up and they connect. And the power of the ensemble is the thing at Second City. It's never about one person. I really don't think Tina would have had the kind of success that she had if she wasn't surrounded by all that amazing talent. It's a little bit like, I don't know if you watched The Last Dance, the Bulls documentary, but it's a little bit like with Jordan. Like, you know, the those first years, yeah, he was great, but they weren't going to win anything. And it wasn't until they operated as this sort of seamless group where they, they all believed in this sort of this triangle format, which is very improvisational, right? It was like, you're going to play these scales and then you're going to go, that they succeeded. And I think that that is very true in our kind of theater-based comedy. Yeah, that's really interesting because you think about the great talent, whether it's in sports, you mentioned Michael Jordan, but in the Olympics or other areas, and the power of the team, you call it the ensemble. I did a podcast with a woman named Keegan Randall, who is a gold medalist in cross-country skiing for America. She's from Alaska. She trained 15 years for that moment. And when I asked her what happened that day in that final race, it was a relay race, her and one other teammate. And she said, well, the reason we won is we had the best skis. And what does that mean? Well, they had 10 technical people working on the wax and on the adjustments. And it's not that the Norwegians didn't have 10, the Norwegians had 25, but it just all clicked together. So someone who dedicates 15 years of their life, which she did maybe longer, actually, to be fair, to being the best in the world at some sport, still needed that ensemble of different types of talent to make it work. It's kind of amazing. You've written about, too, the kitchens around America, yes. you know, and, and how they share talent. And I think you see this also on the other side, especially with what we've seen in terms of the social unrest, because that's really hit the restaurant industry, that there was, in addition to these wonderfully creative sort of like Alice Waters restaurants, the same thing was happening, but in a very destructive and toxic way. When you had, you know, a top chef who was a jerk or a misogynist or a racist, those environments just completely were destroyed. There really is, I think, very little difference. I find it an artificial conceit that somehow business operates differently than the rest of the world in life. You know, it's like the same stuff that we all grow up with, we bring wherever we go, whether it's in our homes or in our offices or with our friends or in a theater or in a kitchen. So I think what maybe would be wiser to sort of focus on the things we do know about the way human beings behave, the latest science, and use that as our North Star as opposed to the way business was done like 50 years ago with some book that's horribly out of date. I think we're on the same page. The nature of business is the nature of people. So far, I mean, maybe we'll get to AI dominating the world and running, who knows? But it hasn't happened yet, and we're pretty advanced. And I always have said, you know, and this is true in a lot of my own research on decision-making biases, or just how people make decisions in general, and what accounts for failure and success. It's always about the people. And I think that's one of the reasons why some of the work you've done in improv as you brought it to the world of business has really kind of resonated. I don't think it was a big, maybe it's a big stretch when they first hear about it. And they say, what do you mean improv? I'm going to, right away they're uncomfortable, number one, I'm sure. And number two, how could that be really important? But then as soon as they're exposed, it's a no-brainer, it's obvious. Of course, because in very few of the, certainly the senior jobs, you're not handed a script. So what you really are doing is looking for, how can you get peak performance out of your workforce and that requires human beings tapping into the thing that makes them most human, their ability to problem solve, divergent thinking, creativity, innovation, storytelling. If you can teach someone how to read a room, 
and exist and play within a room, I would suggest that maybe that is one of the most valuable techniques that I've ever come across in my 30 plus year career, working with all kinds of you know, Fortune 500 companies. And it is those people who can get the best out of everyone around them, which is true leadership. And it's not always the CEO. I always find it funny too, the people I've met along the way who are the most powerful people inside organizations. They are very often not the CEO. They could be the head of HR, they could be a marketing person, but everyone knows that they're the go-to person. They're the person who gets it done. Yeah. So read the room. I like that you said that. And you said there's some techniques. Is there something you can provide a couple of tips on how somebody can do that? Oh, yeah. Uh, My wife and I went and saw R.E.M. when they were still a band. Um, (laughs) And they were at the Auditorium Theater, which is a rather small venue in Chicago for a band like that. And Michael Stipe, the lead singer, did this thing, which is he would, and again, it's probably like 2,000, 3,000 people, I think, are in there. He would find someone and make lock eyes with them made sure they knew it, nodded, and then went on. And he did this like four times. And everyone could sort of figure out what was going on. And it was very powerful. And there's a thing in improvisation that there's many exercises which are about playing with focus. And sometimes it's self-focus and your ability to sort of focus on how you enter a room. But more often than not, it's focusing on others. And so when you can be amazingly others-focused inside a room, you are gaining power. in that room. People love to be asked their opinion, to ask questions, to make eye contact with them, to see them and hear them. This is, again, the skill that can also be used for evil because this is what con men do all the time, (laughs) you know? And, And politicians, God, Bill Clinton was very good at this in terms of making anyone in that room feel like they were the center of the world, the center of attention. It was legendary for that, I think. And to, you know, not great effect at certain times in terms of his I know people have been with him and and yeah, but I think that the thing about that kind of skill is that isn't a thing that just happens naturally. That is a thing that you learn and develop by practicing it and continuing to practice it because it can also atrophy and go away. And I think this is the thing I'm very curious about when we step out of our homes and walk into whatever our prospective business is, like how are we going to be with each other when we're allowed to be with each other in person after this? When we're finally allowed out of our house and off of Zoom. Yeah. I will suggest it's going to be incredibly awkward. We're going to have to find sort of a a new way to sort of encounter each other and and rebuild up that skill. We're going to be out of practice? Yes. Awkward because we're going to be afraid of each other a little bit? Well, I, I imagine all those things will be the case. But I mean, you've probably been in a situation where like you were sick for like three or four days, so you didn't see anyone. And then... Like the first few conversations you have are like, I'm like on another planet. You know, you, you have to sort of re-enter because you're out of shape. Yes, but that's because also if you're sick, you're at home. You're the only one kind of. They keep on moving on and we're kind of in our own world, but we're all in our own. We're all, yeah, that's what's going to make it. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your description of connecting with other people and making other people feel heard and, and listened to and special. That's actually the lesson I learned a long time ago about teaching. When you respect your students, when they know that you care, it's as simple as that, you're automatically a good teacher. It doesn't make you a great teacher. There's a lot of communication skills. And of course, hopefully we care about the content of what somebody's Mm -hmm, saying. mm -hmm. But when you respect your students, you're automatically in the game as somebody who's a player. And it's so, so simple. And I've discovered, you know, especially with younger colleagues, you know, when you see them teaching and they're working hard, and it's not that they don't respect the students, but their head is in a million places. And sometimes it's just a simple thing to just signal that, even say that, 
I think it should always be the starting point, and it doesn't become that. And that's a strange thing that has happened over time and probably has to do with the way our educational system is structured and the way training and business has, has come around. Anyone can learn information. Let's say 95% of people can learn information. But the ability to take that information and then apply it successfully in collaboration with others is the real thing you need. And this is why improv is so valuable, is like, especially as an orienting tool. Because if you're walking into something new, what you want is the skill of observation, the skill of understanding, the skill of collaboration, as I said, all these things that improvisers work at and have all these exercises that speak to, because then you can kind of like work with whatever is in front of you. You can kind of say and do anything, and you can also make mistakes and learn from them. We've probably talked about this before, but I mean, just this trying to erase failure in business, which is the antithesis of innovation. It's the opposite. Like the only way innovation happens is when you experiment over and over, which is a majority of failures on your way to an eventual success. And yet we're held up to these ridiculous standards that no one keeps, or you go the other way. And it's like Amy Edmondson's work where it's built upon people not feeling psychologically safe and then just like lying about it, which gets dangerous right. inside organizations. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it is really interesting to think about that. It's something I've not only have I seen, I've studied as well. And it's almost two decades now since I wrote one of my first books, Why Smart Executives Fail. And it profiled 51 CEOs in 51 companies that really fell apart. Some were famous, like the Enrons and Worldcons, but others were run-of-the-mill. Like when Sony bought Columbia Pictures, that goes way back a little bit, they took a write-off of something like $2.5 or $3 billion dollars. And I, I remember writing, I was so proud of myself when I wrote this in the book. I said, well, they licked their $3 billion wounds and moved on. And they were able to because in those days they were making so much money. How many of them actually admitted the failure? And if you don't admit it, you don't acknowledge it, then there's, there's not much opportunity to learn from it. We've brought in Second City into uh, our Tuck Launch program, which is a two-week uh, orientation type program. And we wanted to, uh, I guess we wanted to do some of the things that, you know, you and I are talking about, about how people learn and what's really important. You know, when you go to business school, you learn plenty of finance and accounting and operations and strategy. And you got to know that. I consider that kind of like your entry ticket, the rules of the game. You got to know that. But they're not really going to be big differentiators. The big differentiators are always around leadership, creativity, working with people. And so that's why we brought in Second City. And we also did a few other things. It's interesting. I remember when I was talking to uh, was Piero in particular that I was planning all this and working with, and we were sharing a couple other programs that we were doing as part of this experience. And he completely kind of connected with it. One of them is called Narrative Medicine. You might be oh, yeah. familiar with it. Rita Sharon, Dr. Rita Sharon from Columbia and her team essentially invented this idea. And another one is what a lot of museums are doing now, some version of learning to look where you look at a painting and you talk about what do you see? And the reason I mention that is, well, for two reasons. Number one, this is, I think, the future of education for adults who are aspiring to run organizations, build organizations, lead organizations. And I know you're doing that type of work with many, many companies uh, as well. I'm interested in the evolution of how all that happened. But also, you know, it's to this point earlier about when you work with executives and they see you come in and you talk about improv and people are like, what the heck's that about? It's exactly the reaction we've had in the past when we've done these exercises like learning to look. In the days when people could be together, we'd go to the museum, the Hood Museum of Art here in Hanover, New Hampshire, and it's a beautiful museum, a Dartmouth College Museum, and you'd sit in front of the, this beautiful artwork. And I did this a few times with the executives I was leading 
And the facilitator would say, okay, well, what do you see? And would have that conversation. And everyone's kind of pausing and they're not sure what to say and what's dumb and what's not dumb. And then, I don't know, it doesn't take a long time. And all of a sudden, there's this tremendous discussion. And then the whole night after that, into the next day, that's all they want to talk about. Yeah. Well, I think certainly when we first started doing this, and even I will say 10 years ago, there were a lot of question marks and a lot of talking our way into gigs. That is not the case anymore. There has been a sea change, and I think it's for many reasons, not the least of which is you can't come across a business book now that doesn't mention improvisation. I know this because I interview all these people and I get all these books, and there's always some version of that, whether they use it from sports or from somewhere else. It's interesting because you asked about the origin. The way this all started was back in the 80s, we had a touring company that toured colleges and performing arts centers, still do. But we would get calls from businesses basically sort of saying, hey, could you bring a troop in because like the VP of whatever is retiring and we want to do. And then could you customize some scenes about that? And so the bulk of what we did were those scenes. Now, we had the Second City Training Center going with classes. And increasingly, as that was growing, we were finding people in the classes who were not interested in getting on Saturday Night Live or even on Second City. They weren't there because they were there. They were there to work on themselves. And it might have been that they were a divorce or they lost their job or they were looking for a promotion. And then more and more of those people <laughs> started coming to classes. And we realized, oh, so the corporate stuff has been all these shows, these customized shows uh, with a couple of workshops now and again. And we just saw it change. So it just kept moving, moving, moving to now it's like 90% learning and 10%. And I'm exaggerating on that, but I mean, there is just a proliferation of people wanting to build the skill set because they get it. And it only takes them, like you said, like the experience in the museum, the minute someone has that aha moment, there's nothing like that that's, it sticks and it sticks with you because you just realize what you felt in that moment when you finally like realized the thing. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think the fact that we're on campus with you uh, uh, virtually, but we've been on the campuses of Yale and Harvard and University of Chicago and Stanford, and all of them are doing improv work anyway, even some of them before we got there. Right. Right. So let me let me ask you, let's maybe go a little bit more granular here, granular on a couple of things. Improv is actually life and every day. You've said something like that, I think, as well. Yeah. Could, you, could you say a little bit more about that? I wake up and I'm performing improv because I'm I don't have a script. Yeah, I call it human being practice. Improvisation is an orientation towards what you do when you have no script and you need to make it with other people which is what happens when we wake up in the day. And so there's a few different things. One of the principles, and it's the name of my book, is yes and. So the idea here is when groups of people are making something out of nothing, they get nowhere by using no. And they actually don't get that far just by agreeing, just by saying yes. The idea about yes and is that you have to affirm and contribute in order to explore and heighten. And my wife is very funny because she's like, she doesn't like using the words yes and because she feels like people just say that and then they think they've done it and they're misusing it if they think that's the case. Because really what we are talking about is exploring and heightening. So what is the territory you've handed to me? I'm going to go with you. I'm going to try to take it somewhere else and you're going to take it somewhere else. We're doing this together. And what we've seen over decades at Second City is the best material that we created on stage came out of these very unusual places and weird mixtures of things. And then as you start to study how post-its came about, right? I mean, you could have called them mistakes. 
that's so much the story in business is how various things developed. And I mean, just look at the story of Netflix. I mean, I think about what they were as to what they what they are. Right, right, right. right. Clunky, clunkiest and, thing. And they took some some beatings along the way yeah. for especially that that transition, right? So why are people so afraid of crazy ideas? Why why is this like a, a it's uncomfortable fear? It is uncomfortable. They get in their fear brain, and mostly they get in their judgment brain. Mm. And, and the reality is, you cannot be in a creative mindset and be analyzing and judging yourself at the same time. You have to suspend that entirely. And so then you might look foolish. I mean, I, I think so much of this is we spend so much time thinking that the world is watching us when really we're all watching ourselves. <laughs> so, you know, like most people do not really care about me. They care about themselves. And I might be along for the ride at some point. And so once you sort of get in that mindset of like, look, I've fallen down in front of people so many times and I am still here. That is the great mark of resilience of an improviser is their ability to be fearless and sometimes even follow their fear because making yourself uncomfortable allows you to discover new things about yourself. Even the most creative individuals in the world uh, get into their patterns. And I think we see this in art a lot. I, I'm very into music, so it's very hard for musical artists to remain relevant throughout a long arc of their career, let's say 40 or 50 years. Bob Dylan's new album is amazing. I don't know Bob Dylan well. I know his son, and so I know of him a little bit. He is constantly making himself uncomfortable as a way to find what's new in his art. And, and we've seen that, right? Over time, he's gone through, you know, he was Christian, and then he was Jewish, and then he was like this, and divorce, and Many, whatever. many, many phases, and, and pissing off a lot of people along pissing the way, because he didn't want to do what they expected him to do. No, and in so doing, created a body of work unlike any artist of the modern era. I was listening to this album just going, I, you are finding fresh stuff at this age and you can't really sing or, or really play the guitar, <laughs> but, you, <laughs> but you're an incredible lyricist and songwriter. Yeah. How can somebody become more creative if they want to become more creative? They if they're open, they want, they want that, yeah. but they don't feel like they're that way. Yeah. Okay, well, take an improv class, of course, but there's other things, right? Writing things down, turns out, is important. <laughs> and I know there's some science behind this. So... The My wife was a comedy professor, so she created the first BA in comedy writing and performance at Columbia College here in Chicago. One of the things she instills in her comedy students is a daily writing practice. And she says, like, even if it's a few sentences, even if it's the worst top 10 list that you ever created, just get into the habit of writing every single day. Because if you want to get into this industry, especially now, because the industry is no longer, I'm a writer. I'm an actor, I'm a producer, everyone's a hyphenate because you don't know where you're going to get end up or what opportunity someone's going to mm-hmm. give, give to you. So the more that you can learn how to collaborate with others, self-develop material, hone that material, find ways to get out in front of audiences, all that stuff, it is work. I think the mistake that people make, and it's probably because we've mythologized artists to a certain degree as being somehow magic, none of this is magic. What Tina Fey does as an artist is incredibly hard work and she does it every day without rest. Adam McKay is another person who I worked with who directed The Big Short among other things and Vice is doing and this is someone who went from those really dumb but funny Will Ferrell movies to winning Oscars and it was because he's an artist who's always looking at like how can I grow how can I develop and so I create 
what he did was create daily practices for himself, which wasn't just writing. I mean, he also shot baskets. I mean, there were different things that he would do that he knew that he needed when he needed to channel his creative thinking. My friend Neil Stevenson, who used to run IDEO here in Chicago, has a fun thing that he advises people to do. Because the other thing in addition to your practice, you have to break up your own patterns. So he'll say, like, if you're going to a new town, back when we could go to new towns, go buy a magazine that you would never buy and read it cover to cover. Or when you get in the Uber or the Lyft, actually have the conversation with the driver. You will come out the other end with new stuff that you were like, oh, and that's very much of a yes and to your life. That's like yes anding all the opportunities that exist that you don't take when you're living your daily life because it might seem weird or you might not be in the mood. But rarely do we regret, rarely do we regret those kinds of interactions because at their worst, they're funny stories that we can tell later. Somehow we put these barriers in place, I think, that affect whether we're going to do any of that. And I like what you also said, because you're talking about a discipline, right? Creativity is a discipline. might sound a little bit strange, but it is like any other amazing skill. And you got to practice it. You got to do it. And there are some tools, there's some techniques that you just described, but you got to work at it. You do. I mean, this is Wayne Shorter, you know, playing scale after scale on a bridge. This is Michael Jordan with those free throws, you know. This, is, like this is Philip Roth showing up every day in his office to write yeah. every day for decade upon decade. And not everyone's going to produce what a Philip Roth produced or what a Michael Jordan did. But you're definitely not going to do it if you don't have that discipline. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And can improv help parents? Can it help people become better parents? Oh, God. Yes, in profound ways. So Anne and I have both worked at Second City our entire adult lives. Um, she ran the training center for a decade. We had two kids, Nick and Nora. Nick was, came first, and he got involved in the very first summer camps that we had, and Nora took classes as well. And like when they were little, like Nick was just like natural to the work and, and a very natural conversationalist. Nora had what we classified as Nora logs. She spoke in monologues. Uh, <laughs> and so we actually played an improv game around the kitchen table and in the car when we were driving them called One Word Story. And what you do is you tell a story as a group one word at a time. And it was very frustrating for Nora because like every time she came to where it should be like a the or an and or an a, uh, she would say hippopotamus and it would completely derail the story. Which meant she was losing the game and she didn't want to lose the game. She didn't want to lose the game. So as she sort of learned, you know, to use the thes and the ands and that those were really important in terms of us collectively telling the story so that would make sense. It provided her with an amazing skill set that she could bring as she got older. And two years ago, Nora got diagnosed with stage four cancer and she was 16. And Anne and I had spent the previous couple of years working on two programs. One is a program at the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago called the Second Science Project, where we look at behavioral science through the lens of improvisation. And we took some of that work to work with our friend Ai-Jen Poo at Caring Across Generations and developed a curriculum at the Cleveland Clinic in Las Vegas that's called Improvisation for Caregivers. So we had literally been working in the space of how can we give people in the caregiving community skills and practice in more effective communication in medical settings or even home settings where, where you're dealing with things like dementia. So when we were at Lurie Children's Hospital with Nora, we immediately kicked into gear. And one of the things that we knew from the science was that when you can give someone many details of you so that they see you as fully human, you're gonna get better treatment. And there's been studies around this with radiologists by just seeing the actual face of someone, their diagnosis goes up uh, rate. So we had an exercise, it's called Universal Unique. 
And the exercise that teaches you this is you have someone tell you something banal, like, tell me how you grocery shop, pardon me, how people grocery shop, and you tell the sort of universal idea. Then you have them tell me how you grocery shop. And every time that happens, the second one, when it's your personal story, is way funnier. We're finding out these like weird, interesting details that we're learning about you. And so we applied this in the hospital room because you're getting a rotating amount of doctors and nurses and they're all the different specialists who come in. And they would always be like, I'm Kelly, this is Anne, this is Nora. She also goes by Eleanor. We have a 100-pound Bernese Mountain Dog named Benchley, who's a jerk. And we live in Ravenswood Manor in Chicago. Who are you? Where did you go to school? And we built up this ensemble of caregivers at Lurie. And we laughed a lot. We had music in the room. We shared a lot of food. This was a big thing we did with the nurses, is we would get pizza, we'd get wings, whatever, cookies, cupcakes. There was just like in, you know, on a cancer ward too, this is like hard because there's also a lot of nausea and and other stuff. But we found ways to sort of build community. Nora died August 1st of last year. So about a year of the caring process. And now we're coming to the end of a year of the grieving process. Improvisation, I didn't realize was going to be important in the grieving process, but it became important especially when I got introduced to the work of Bessel van Kork and understanding the kind of trauma that lives in the body. And when you go through a, a trauma like she did and like we did, being parents of, uh, and losing a child, you realize you have to listen to your body and your body does respond to play. And so we sort of look back at like, okay, the way we're going to get out of this is not by isolating ourselves. The way we're going to get through this is by allowing ourselves to connect with people and pay attention to ourselves and pay attention to what we can handle, what we can't, but be very public and very open. I mean, I kept a blog that's been read by, you know, half a million people about this entire journey. And, and it was particularly during the grief journey that I was hearing from people because I had no idea that so many people are walking around with pain. Hmm. I think you probably know it to be true too. Most people do when they talk about it, that a lot of people are walking around with It's trauma. kind of what you said earlier, you know, we're so into ourselves, we don't really understand or look around and realize it. And especially when it comes to cancer, is there any family that's not been touched in some way through Every some relative? Family. Every family and other pains. I just got a text today from a very dear friend. It's like, it's the anniversary of the day he learned his sister had killed herself. And he's like, I don't mean to compare my loss to your loss. I'm like, you don't have to say that. A loss is a loss. A trauma is a trauma. Mm-hmm. And I recognize that ours looks, and of course, losing a child is, is different. I get it. But of course, what you feel is what you feel. And when you're sad, you're sad. And I think that we, Jane Dutton has done interesting work on this with Monica Warline at University of Michigan around suffering at work and the acknowledgement of suffering at work. We held Nora's celebration or memorial service at my job mm. on stage at Second City. Wow. They had to simulcast it in two different rooms because thousands of people showed up. And we cried and we laughed and we sang and we told stories and we painted a picture. And it was amazing. And I got to do that at my work. I don't know. I think there's nothing remarkable about our story uh, because so many people have gone through it. But I will say that the ability for us to, we have a phrase, play the scene you're in, not the scene you want to be in. And that's what we did. We played the scene we were in. Right. I had a, um, a niece that had died from uh, ALL. She was like, just had turned uh, 30. Such a wonderful, such a wonderful woman. And she kept a uh, journal. And I've been thinking about, along with her siblings, 
looking for a way to publish some part of that journal, but it's also very personal. And so we're not going to do that. But those messages, people, I think, in the way you just shared, there are people listening and people understand. They may not have, and probably very few have had to deal with the trauma, the specific trauma you're talking about, but everyone has had, everyone has had something. So thank you for, for sharing. There's one question I, I don't know whether improv helps, whether being a human helps. No one seems to know what to say. No. What could you say, really? Yeah. What I learned over time is just show up for me. Just show up for us. And if that's a, I'm thinking about you, and if you need something, I'm here. One morning, I was at the hospital, and I'm like, uh, I cannot get, like, the coffee machine's broken on the floor. And literally, I got three deliveries of, from Uber Eats from various people who sent me coffee. And then a nurse <laughs> said, someone called her and said, you're over there. Go bring this man a cup of coffee. At first, one thing that someone who is facing this has to learn to do, a parent or whatever, is ask for help. The person across has to be able to be like, don't be bashful about offering help. You don't want to be intruded upon, but you want to know you have resources. Because, I mean, this is, scarcity is always the problem, you know, in a variety of, of contexts. In this one, it's huge because you need a variety of options to try to make it through this thing. And then you're taking such a beating trying to sort of remain positive and all that to then come home and like there's a fruit basket on the front lawn or, or I, like people would send us ridiculous boxes of like pirate booty because they knew she liked pirate booty or bark thins because she liked that like entire boxes i'm like this is great this is actually really great so i think it's like you don't have to say the right thing three words that many of my friends learned to text me uh which is i see you I see you. The boxes of things, all sorts of things. I had forgotten this until you just said that, but as a professor, you go around a lot of universities. I would always go into the store in the university and buy a bunch of swag, sweatshirts and hats and send it to my niece. She ended up with you know, 20 different collections of hats and sweatshirts and other things from different schools. I totally forgot. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, well, these, these are these you know, sort of rituals that become important. I was just talking yesterday to... Casper Terkeil, who's at the Harvard Divinity School, and he's got a new book called The Power of Ritual. He hosts the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text podcast, which many people listen to. And talking about, you know, we live in a world where more churches are closing every year than ever before. Yes, yes. People aren't going there. But that doesn't mean that we don't have this need of connection. It's, it's biological. We need to be connected. So how about we fill our secular spaces with the sacred? And these rituals that can be a meal, they can be an improv class or being part of an improv community, being at Soul Cycle, the dinner party, right? These collective gatherings where we eat together. Your little thing of buying the hats is like, it's like such a great thing because that becomes a thing over time. Uh, we had that too, uh, Nora loved dogs. And our friend Heather, who I worked with, traveled a ton and she would find a dog everywhere she went, a little tiny ceramic dog and bring it home for her. And so she had this like really nice little collection. So I think there's the words we say, of course, but there's also those actions, you know, send a thing, a note card. I've gotten more letters in the last two years than I've gotten in the last decade of my life. You know, when you go through what we went through, and both Anne and I are, you know, prominent members of a very specific kind of community. So we've touched a lot of, a lot of people closely. I think there is an idea of like, oh, let's, sending a letter is an intimate act. Especially today when nobody's doing it, or exactly. is doing it. It I mean, takes. I don't, I like, like, I hardly get mail anymore, right? I mean, we still get the newspapers and that sort of, but it really is sort of like, no, I used to really enjoy getting, getting mail. That's right. 
You get more texts than you get mail on any given day yeah. by probably a factor of 10. Yeah. <laughs> if not, so, if so not that's, more. that's, yeah. and, and I got a card the other day from an actress who was just, Nora's birthday was on July 10th. So it was our first birthday without her. And that card showed up on that day. And it was a variation of, I see you on this day. Yeah. You reminded me of things I didn't even remember myself. And I'm suspecting a lot of others as well. I'll tell you one story. And, and then, then I want to ask a little bit more about Second City and also the connection with SNL and some of the legendary people. You mentioned Tina Fey, Chris Farley and others. But I had a uh, friend, he's now passed away. He was quite a bit older than I am. I was very close to my mother. And when she died, this is in 2003, he called me and he didn't live where I live. And uh, he said one thing to me, and it was, I'll never forget that. And, and because it was just exactly the right thing. And he said, you know, you gave her a lot of joy. Mm. That's what he said to me. And mm. I thought, wow. And That's, it, yeah. it was so comforting. Oh, sure. my goodness. Comforting even now, how many years yeah. Yeah, yeah, later. Yeah. And then, you know, when he died, his, his name uh, was Alan Elkins. When he died, and again, he was much uh, older than me, but he died of lung cancer in his uh, early 70s. I wrote a long letter to his wife about what he meant to me. And we now, my wife and I, have become very, very close with his wife. For, oh, good. It's, got a, it's like a decade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so many legendary people, and one, one after another. I know you, I can't ask you who your favorite was because that put <laughs> you in trouble with too many, but you know Stephen Colbert. Tell us about Stephen Colbert. I, He's I, one of I the most love, fascinating people I love around. talking about Stephen. So Stephen was roommates with my wife at Northwestern. Uh, they lived in a house off campus with a couple other folks. After they graduated, Stephen really wanted to be, he was sort of a poet jerk. He wanted to be a serious theater artist. Anne got a job in the box office at Second City. And when you work at Second City, you get free classes. So she was also starting to take classes and really enjoying it and trying to convince Stephen to do it. And Stephen was trying to pay for rent by making futon frames in their basement because Jesus was a carpenter. But he was not talented at it and they were not selling. So a position in the merchandise room at Second City opened. And so Stephen got the job there at Second City. He actually held the record for most sold t-shirts in one night for like almost two decades. Very upset when he lost that record. But then he started taking classes. And we talked earlier about the people you connect with. Well, he got into class with a guy named Paul Donello, who is still, he's Stephen's producer, and Amy Sedaris. And the three of them were peas in a pod. And I remember... They were all in the touring company. In those days, the Second City, they're like everyone went out with everyone. So it didn't matter if you were a dishwasher or a waitress or an actor. Like we we're all at the same bar <laughs> in the same status. And the three of them, I remember by the time I became producer at Second City in 92, talking to our owner, Andrew Alexander, and being like, we have to keep them together. <laughs> this is like, this is such a powerful unit. And, and they've stayed sort of close friends. But, you know, Stephen's life was touched by tragedy. He lost his father and his older brothers in a plane crash. And so Stephen was the baby of the family, and he was left at home with the mom, the newly widowed mom, South Carolina, Charleston. And so he came to Northwestern as a transfer student, and really kind of a little bit troubled, and is still a seeker. I mean, he's amazingly gifted, great amount of integrity as a human being, really thinks things over. And certainly was and continues to be a fantastic friend to us. When we held Nora's memorial service at Second City, I had no idea. But Stephen had his, they shot two episodes in one day so he could fly his writing staff and he to come to the memorial. 
So they all walked in together. Wow. Because the writing staff is filled with Second City folks who are our friends. And that was an amazing just act of generosity for him, you know, to be part of that. One of the things that's nice, and it's true about Steve and Antina, because people are like, are they nice? And I'm like, oh, they're kind. I mean, they're not just nice. I mean, they're like, these, these are people with integrity and kindness and compassion. And that, in my experience in the Second City world of my era, was the norm. It wasn't everyone, but it was overwhelmingly mm-hmm. most of them. And I remember a very funny moment I had with Mark Marin. So Mark was coming to do like a book signing at one of our theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got in this con- a very interesting conversation because he's like, he's become so reflective over the years. And I don't know if you're familiar with Mark's work, but yeah. Uh, so you'll appreciate this. He's like, so Kelly, I'm looking at all the pictures and I'm like, oh man, you know, like John Belushi, Chris Farley, true artists who gave their life for the work and, you know, all these bad boys and all that. And then I get to like, Oh, Tina Fey, amazing artist, actually a really nice human being. Steve Carell, a really good guy, incredible actor, Oscar-winning actor. And then he's like, it just dawned on me that so many of us thought that the way you got funny was either through harming yourself, drugs, being a jerk. And then you look at this sort of more modern era, Mm -hmm. and the kings of comedy are actually fairly well-adjusted, as well-adjusted as human beings as human beings can be, who walk around us in the world. And I think that's the case for a lot of the people who we respect in comedy. It just was like, I certainly, when I entered Second City in the 80s, I felt like, I mean, I did my thesis on the Beat Generation, so I I definitely had this sort of like, no romanticism about the destruction of yourself in pursuit of your art. I think that turns out to be a false narrative. That's not quite interesting because there's lots of research on creativity and uh, mental illness and other things like this. I think the research is far from, we're far from able to say there's anything more than an occasional correlation. But when that happens, it gets a lot of publicity, right? Right. So were you able, I mean, you and your your colleagues, did you know that Colbert, I mean, nobody knows Colbert becomes Colbert, but if you were going to bet on someone, would he have been in the short list of kind of Uh, who's going to be a superstar? Yeah. So Colbert for sure. Carell it took like eight years of him being at Second City to then, like we always knew he was great. That's why he kept him around. But it was like, basically like, oh my God, you have grown. And really it was as an actor. And I think we, that's been borne we out see, in terms of right. what, see what he's done. The one person who is not a household name, though very successful in the industry that we all thought would be a household name is Scott Adsit. So Scott played Pete, the producer on 30 Rock. He has been the voice of some major sort of animated work and been in a lot of feature films is maybe one of the best actors I've ever seen on stage. Hmm. What about the opposite? People that, they were good, but you wouldn't have guessed that they're going to be, you know, somebody everybody knows about, but they came out of Second City. Is there anyone in that category? That's an interesting question. Okay, so someone whose success I didn't think would go where it went was Jordan Peele. I mean, Jordan's hilarious. He's a total goof. So like the Key and Peele stuff, I'm like, this makes total sense to me. The fact that he would become the kind of film director Mm -hmm. uh, that he became... I mean, I have watched his films and like, this is stunning art that I did not know you had in you. Yeah, so that was a surprise. Again, as a TV comedian, film comedian, yeah, totally. Profound artistic filmmaker, didn't see it for a mile. I I like those stories because it shows that you can grow and you can get better and better and better. 
and maybe pass your own ceiling, to use the baseball terminology, right? You have a ceiling that you think you can get to double A, triple A, or a regular player, what have you. And all of a sudden, you're a star, you become a star. And it's possible because, as we said earlier, you know, talent, you could learn how to be talent. I mean, there's differences, of course, among some of the people you talked about, but you can learn, you can get better. It's actually quite interesting to think about what is the spark. I, I don't know if you know, for someone like Jordan Peele, what happened that kind of brought him into a different stratosphere that was I, not predictable. Yeah, I think what happens when, so he had some success, Key and Peele, like a lot of success, and then you start entering rooms where people will allow you to kind of bring your crazy idea. And I think Jordan always had these crazy ideas and was like, I'm going to say them out loud. And by saying them out loud, and someone just happened to say yes, and then doing the work, like, you know, all right, let's get the best team together that we can get to make the vision of this actually happen and avoid compromising. A very funny conversation with Peter McGraw, who's a um, professor, he does a lot of humor studies at Boulder. He used an analogy for me, like people make a mistake where people like hot tea or they like cold tea. So the thing is like a lot of people then say, well, let's sell them warm tea. Um, which is like, <laughs> so many people do that because they think they can get the market share. And it's like, no, 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 just like either sell them cold or sell them hot. Do not sell them warm tea. That's actually quite wise. That, that point could be applied in lots and lots yeah. of different ways. Very interesting. So a couple other quick names. Did you know or do you know Bill Murray? Oh, yeah. yeah well, yeah. So when my dad was a radio and TV guy, he interviewed Bill a bunch. And Bill's also from Wilmette, Illinois, which is right next to Kenilworth, where I grew up. Mm. So his youngest brother, Joel, was actually on stage at Second City when I was a dishwasher. And I had met Bill a couple of times. And he is an interesting character. I mean, that movie about him, I forget what yeah. it's called, but he's, they just got all this tape of him showing up places. It's really That's spectacular. That's what he does. And Dan Filato, who's a longtime producer at WGN, he does other stuff now, is one of Bill's closest friends. And so, like, there's very few ways to get to Bill. Normally, there's just a phone number, which is a lawyer, and you leave a message. And then he might call you back. He might not call you back. You don't know. Uh, I remember he, it was the Steppenwolf Theater Company's, like, 20th or 25th anniversary, and Bill was scheduled to host. I'm like, you know that that might not happen. They're like, oh, no, we have a backup. <laughs> uh, and, but he did. He came on and slayed. was brilliant. Yeah, he beats to his own drum. Again, I think similar to our conversation around Dylan, I think Bill Murray also has proven to be a very unique artist, just more pro-social in, in some regards than Dylan. He likes being with people. Yes, exceptionally so. If any so. people have to see that, see that movie, it's really funny. What's the relationship between Second City and SNL? So when I started, it was tense. And the previous sort of folks who ran Second City kind of sort of felt a little, you know, like, oh, they're taking our talent away. I mean, we did our own show, SCTV, kind of in response, which, while not as a, a mega hit in the United States, is a cult classic and certainly like Canada's greatest sketch show of all time. We certainly changed that. So my team was like, look, it's only good for us when someone goes on SNL and they find out they're from Second City and they continue to do that. And so in my era, when I started producing, in addition to Lorne, I was working a lot with Marcy Klein, who's Calvin Klein's daughter. Uh, she was a producer there. And they would sort of ask us who they should have their eyes on. And so it was very collaborative. Different producers over different time, you know, come. The last time I saw Lauren, which was a few years ago, was in front of the theater. And he was like, will you take a picture of me just in front of the marquee area? And I did. And he's like, I've just been doing this for so long. It's like, I don't have this photo. And he's feeling very sort of, you know, wistful about the relationship. And right now... 
A.D. Bryant and Cecily Strong and Chris Red and a couple other people, I think, on the show from our team. So, um, yeah, it's a good one. I was a little disappointed that they didn't try to do more in the virtual environment than what yeah, they, they did. Yeah, they had one or two shows, I think. They did. Um, right? But, but uh, they, they're, I mean, I don't know you, I have been just astounded by the kind of art that people are making. Absolutely. It's, it's endless and it's, it's amazing to see what people have done. Yeah. I think this is part and parcel of what our conversation has been about. So I think the people who are making so much of this amazing art in this environment had huge constraints and not a lot of resources. So they needed to tap the deepest sense of their imagination. And I think at Saturday Night Live, they had budgets and they had other things that they, they had resources. And so they did not tap the deepest part of their imagination. They just sort of did a scene that was filmed on an iPhone or just like did what they would do, you know, in the studio, but at a home. As opposed to like dance troops who found ways of using the different squares of Zoom yes. to then create movement pieces, which are wild. You even see that with Jimmy Fallon and some of the yeah. things he's done. So, you know, you can't get too comfortable. You know, you've got to be careful about having all those resources and then not recognizing that it often is the constraints that give us the permission to be our most creative. That, I think, has always been true. And it, it's why the highest rated comedy on television is usually so banal <laughs> that like i'm never gonna watch it i'm not watching charlie sheen's sitcom because it's warm tea yeah but people are watching right I mean, well and the reason they're watching is because it's familiar it's like because none of these jokes are new and they are comforted by the fact that this is like i've seen this before this isn't going to tax my brain it's not going to be inappropriate it's not you know which i get and there's a place for that entertainment and that's fine but it's not, it's not where art is hiding out. And, and in art. fact, we see now in the midst of the coronavirus, every company having to adapt in a variety of ways, and some are doing it, and many are not. They're not able to at all. I mean, it's true in my own industry of education and universities. We have gone online for now, and you just can't do what you were doing before. It doesn't make any sense. You have to change that. And it does give you permission to experiment. It does give yeah. you permission to try different things. Yeah, I was amazed that we're... We're not out of the woods at Second City because we can't do live performances and we've got this huge building that we can't use and rent and other problems. But we have a healthy student body taking weekly classes. We're delivering multiple corporate virtual workshops. We just cut 16 videos for this ethics and compliance library that we just used animation and then our actors as voiceover artists. And, and so we're doing work in ways that we've never done before. And we should be proud of that, but then we can't, I've just had this conversation, we had a call, we're like, we can't stop. You know, we got, we were so creative up top, we were so proud of ourselves, people were writing articles about ourselves, and then next crisis comes. Okay, now we've, we're that, so now we have to look at it again. Right, so, right, right. And the thing that allowed you or enabled you to do it is it's completely like your book and, your, and the theme, Yes And. Of course we're going to do it. Uh, yeah. We don't have a choice. We're, we're going to do it. Is that the heart of it? The kind of the mindset? It, the it DNA is a mindset that's in the, the organization? Oh, yeah. And it's been to our detriment as well, but, but mostly, mostly been good is this sort of yes and orientation, which is really, it's another way of saying entertaining a growth mindset. It's that idea of like, no, we can grow and learn and adapt and change when things get thrown at us. That is what we are trained to do. So let's just go do it. And if that means we take a call from a guy at a drive-in who says, do you want to try to put a show up at the drive-in? We take the call and we see if we can do it. 
So we're just about out of time, Kelly. I have one last question for you, a question I like to ask uh, people. It's an advice question, so you've been asked many advice questions over the years, but this would be an advice question for yourself when you were a young man, when you were, say, 21 years old. If there's one bit of information or advice that you wish you knew or that you would, even better than that, you go back in time to yourself, and wherever you were at 21, you kind of lean over to the 21-year-old Kelly Leonard and say, you know, there's one thing you really want to think about. It's one thing you want to do. It's one thing that's important in life. What would it be? I'm going to say this specifically, but I mean it in a broader sense. Understand what it means to be anti-racist. Understand what inequity really means. Understand your immense privilege that has been denied to people, some institutionally denied. The awakening that's going on in this country right now is remarkable. The way that people have supported the Black Lives Matter movement in just like seemingly overnight. And it's not easy. And this is not the reckoning that we're facing is not going to be easy for any of us. Uh, We're seeing it at universities, right? With the names of things and buildings and statues. But it is the right conversation because of the wrong that was done. I'm reading a book for an upcoming podcast with Valerie Carr, K-A-U-R, who's a Sikh activist. And it is basically her statement is the only way we fight this is with love. And you have to love everyone, including your enemy. And until we do that, this thing ain't going anywhere. But it's hard, hard work. And so I think I would have wanted to be more clued in to understanding the sort of historical inequities that have existed. And then recognizing that I play a part moving forward. Being a good liberal doesn't really mean a lot at the end of the day. Your actions have to line up with your intentions. And I feel like I could have been acting a lot earlier. So I think that's the thing I would have wanted to know. Yeah, that's powerful. I'm reading a book now called The Warmth of Other Suns. I don't mm. know if you've read that. I haven't, but I, I've heard of it. I think the Isabel Wilkerson, I believe, is the author. And I think she's from Chicago, or at least was posted in Chicago. I think she wrote for the New York Times at some point. And it's about the great migration of uh, blacks from the South to the North. Mm-hmm. And while I was just earlier today on a walk with my wife, telling her a little bit about it, because she's probably going to read it next, And you know something about it, right? You know something about what it was like, but you know nothing, actually. Intellectually, you know a little bit. Intellectually, you don't know everything, but emotionally, you cannot know. It's the same thing as, you know, knowing about the, uh, reading about the pogroms in Ukraine or Russia. Yeah, we, we read about that, and, you know, I probably had grandparents that dealt with that. But you can't know. You can't. No, and the generational trauma is real, and it can go on for something like 12 generations, in doing all the trauma research I've done just in my own world that like confronting that of like, oh my God. So this is like, of course it lives in the body. That's a powerful thing to understand. So yes. yeah, we, we have work to do and I think we need to do the work. <laughs> so, and hopefully enough people are up for doing that. It feels like, I mean, I, you know, Anne and I talked a lot about right around Nora's birthday about what we were thinking. And we did a post where we we're like, she would have turned 18. She would have been able to vote. That meant a lot to her. She really wanted to vote. She was an activist. She was very active and wanted more fairness generally across the board for the world. And so our big thing was whoever you want to vote for, whatever, just vote. Just like do it. Do it in her name. Vote. Be involved. Act. The world is an amazing place and it's ours. It's like it's up to us. It's not someone else who's going to do this. And that's an improv thing. It's like you never think, we call it hugging the back wall. Like, you don't do that. You don't wait. You go. You go, you go. You support. You get out there. What, what is needed for this scene? If I'm doing the us and the thus for this scene, that is fine. Then that is my job. My job will change. I get to say hippopotamus. I'll get some juicy verbs or adjectives in there. That's what it really means to sort of play the scene you're in. 
Living a life of reaction is no way to live your life. That's true, not just at a very personal level. It's true about how organizations think about their and operate. Reacting is a good formula to never competing, never winning, and more important for each of us as individuals. It's not actually not that much fun. No, no, no. Why not play on the front lines? That's where the good stuff is. So, Kelly, thank you again so much for joining me on the SIDCAST. Great conversation. The hour flies by, and I feel like we could do another hour. Maybe we will uh, somewhere down the line. You take care and be well. Thank you. Thanks, Sid. Take care. Thank you for listening to the SIDCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you Season 2 and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please Give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SITCAST is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.